just past 7 o'clock, and we are already excited. Time for Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Going to be another great show on tap for you tonight, uh, mostly because, Ira, you're back in studio. It's good to have you. I love being here. It's exciting. And Happy New Year to everybody. It's the Jewish New Year. So we're ready for the start of a great year of sports. Uh, Ira, you know, before we get into um, all the festivities we have planned for tonight's show, did you think that you'd be sitting here tonight getting ready to see the 0-3 Steelers play the 0-3 Bengals for who's going to be last in the AFC North? Oh, I thought it was 3-0 and versus 3-0. <laughs> Is that, it's, it's not? It's I not. Saw, I, was, I was reading it upside down, I guess. Yeah. I, I was surprised by that. No, it, it, is a, it is a shock that they're both 0-3. I know ESPN's hyping this game a lot, but uh, uh, it's a, clearly a must-win for the Steelers. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't, no team's ever made the playoff going down 0-4. It, you know, and it's kind of funny now how out of nowhere, um, everyone was burying the Browns. They're now in first place in the division just like that. So it, crazy how that goes, and we'll see. Maybe the Steelers' season isn't over. It's not like they've got ridiculous amount of performance uh, so far that, to deal with because the Browns and the Ravens both look like they've had uh, a couple of holes in their armor. So we'll get into that in just a second. Big guest, though, tonight. His name is Craig Ellenford. Tell us about him. Well, Craig's one of the top uh, writers of, of books and has had, I think, almost uh, 30 or 40 sports books he's written. He came out with this NFL 100 book. We'll talk about it more when he comes on. It is the like a definitive book of the top 100 moments in the NFL. And it's not like a book that you read online. It's a coffee table book. The mm-hmm. pictures are tremendous. The forwards from Troy Aikman. But he, we're going to talk about how he chose the top 100 moments of the NFL because there's uh, NFL celebrating their 100th year of being in existence. But it's a great book, and he, I can't wait to have him on. Yeah, I can't wait to. I hear all about this, and I know some of my favorite plays. I had to check and make sure um, that they were in there. And favorite, It's, it's, it's events more than plays. It, it, it could be um, a whole series of things. So we'll talk to Craig Ellenport right about 7.15 all about that. Ira, where have you been? I was in uh, the nation's capital. I went to the Penn State-Maryland football game, and then on Saturday I saw the Washington Nationals play the Cleveland Indians. Um, let's talk about Penn State and Maryland. You know, we were talking before we went on air. It's crazy to think of where Maryland is situated. And the just, uh, it, for my entire life, I can't think of the Terrapins ever having a good football team. They get a, a basketball player, Every now and then, they'll have a decent uh, NCAA basketball team. Growing up on Long Island, I, I think I could name on one hand the players who went came from my area and became NFL players. It just doesn't really happen. So maybe it's the lack of football care in the Northeast. It's more like a lacrosse and hockey area. But why do you think this is that, you know, Penn State's not that far away and you guys continually crank out NFL players? Well, everyone around them. I mean, Maryland was Maryland had been in the ACC for until 2014. They're in the heart of the Baltimore-Washington uh, market. Uh, they have players they can get from Pennsylvania, the players they can get from New Jersey, uh, mm. Virginia, uh, North Carolina, everywhere. I mean, they are sitting in Ohio. It's, it's situa- situated perfectly to be this football hotbed. And they've had coaches and every coach comes in there thinking, <laughs> I'm going to make this this football power, almost like the Rutgers coaches. And it just doesn't happen. Uh, Maryland was brought, when they brought into the Big Ten, it was, a, it was a money move. They make them out $50 million a year for the Big Ten. It was Big Ten put them in and Rutgers to get the TV markets. And that's been very beneficial to the Big Ten to have a school, have the D.C. market, Baltimore, D.C. market, and the New York market. Uh, but it was there. They had some problems this past couple of years because they brought D.J. Durkin in from Michigan, and they had an issue where a player, Jordan McNair, was 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 uh, um, died during preseason practice, mm-hmm. and that. 
that scandal about the cover-up with it and how Durkin was running it forced the president to resign, the athletic director to resign, and Durkin to resign. So it's been they, the program has been in turmoil the last couple of years. So it's yeah. amazing. But they came this year. There was this. I love going to away games. I love it. And people are saying, why are we talking about Penn State football? Because I like going to different cities and seeing what it's like. And this was a humongous game. The first solid in 15 years, they had great expectations. when They, they beat Syracuse, who was ranked 21st in the country, by 40 points. Mm-hmm. Then they lose to Temple, but they think that's a, that's a, 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 a fluke, a fluke yeah. an outlier. Um, they have a lot of transfers. Transfers from Florida State, transfers from Virginia Tech. Uh, they really they think their coach was from Alabama, that he's, that he's turning this whole program around. So they were psyched for this game. This was this big, big game that was going to happen. And it was interesting that Lockley, who's the coach in Franklin, in 2000, coached together uh, under Ralph Regan. And at the point that Franklin was supposed to be the coach in waiting at Maryland, and they, they fired Regan and they told Franklin, go away. Franklin goes to Vanderbilt and turns that program around, and then now it's at Penn State. So you mm-hmm. knew that Franklin <laughs> has this, uh, this uh, passion against Maryland, yeah, even though they started them. Yeah, animosity. <laughs> they started them, and, they, and he, he was going to be the coach in waiting, he was going to be the next coach. So he's now he it clearly with a chance he didn't really run the score up but he won the last time he had scored was 66 to 3 so there's a chance that this he gets his team motivated for this game because this is a school that turned their back on him you know, Ira, I've um, had the privilege to spend a lot of time in Maryland at the colleges there, and it, it's really just a fun environment in general. So tell us about, you know, your uh, atmosphere around the game, how you got there and all that. I love the fact when the stadium is in the heart of campus. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's great when you just you take the metro there and you get off the metro and there's a zillion Penn State fans. And so the stadium seats 50,000, half for Penn State, maybe even 30,000 really? for Penn State. But Penn State fans everywhere. You walk through campus, uh, it was just everyone lined up tailgating everywhere and this is a school that doesn't do that it was so busy for people to get in that even by the first quarter the stadium was maybe three quarters filled because nobody was used to going through security and getting through and the stadium <laughs> they weren't logistically no, set up no they're not set up I mean one side of the stadium it's almost like Levi Stadium one side of the stadium is like four levels of suites and of the press box and the other is just a normal stadium so there's a point when you're in the stadium you think you're in a in like a high school stadium but then it is, does seat 50,000 people but, um, but it was great it was on my side where I was sitting all Penn State fans, from from people who drove Penn State, people in this area, because there's Penn State's one of the largest alumni in the country. Uh, but it was the beginning of the game was so was fun because the Maryland band was on the field. So Maryland's out there and their their band's playing and they have feathers and they have the instruments and the Penn State team just ran on the field like they're supposed to run on. Well, I guess Maryland was confused and their band <laughs> starts sprinting to the other side where they're supposed to be and they're like dropping their instruments and it was almost like a military uh, like a, in, in full retreat. But their mask mascot is the terrapin, a turtle. So the turtle does not, with their uniform, can't run that fast. So the Penn State (laughs) players were overcoming the turtle and the turtle. That's where the game sort of fell apart for the terrapins when their turtle (laughs) got overrun by the Penn State players. (laughs) It's 7-Eleven Iron Sports, the true oldies channel. Just about five minutes. We'll have Craig Ellenport, veteran uh, sports journalist, author of a great new book about the NFL. You're going to want to stick around for that. Uh, So, Ira, what happened in this game? Because I think it didn't go good for the turtles. How about a six and a half point line uh, it was supposed to be six and a half points and it ended up it ended up 59 nothing it was a total disaster for for maryland uh penn state got an interception earlier sean clifford the quarterback this is the game when i'm watching penn state my fourth game for penn state watching penn state where you're like okay penn state could make the playoff sean clifford looked like an elite quarterback he was sharp he was fast i noticed in warm-ups he was just he was just just throwing the ball faster making quick better decisions and when it's time to run he would run making reads 
leads on defenses, mm-hmm. and, and 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 Maryland helped out. I mean, the two interceptions by Dirk quarterback Jackson, the transfer from Virginia Tech, are, uh, he he had he struggled. But so Penn State's defense played great. But Clifford was tremendous, and KJ Hamler, uh, number who's number one for Penn State, what a wide receiver. I mean, he has to be one of the top five five wide receivers in the country. He caught long passes. He returning punts. Just he's quick. He's fast. He's smart. He's really good. I, just a tremendous game for Penn State. Um, they were up 38 nothing in the first half. Mm-hmm. I mean, this a lot of these games we're going to talk about in college football, it was like that. 38 nothing, game over, the second half, no one cares. I mean, Clifford was 26 for 31, 398 yards, three touchdowns, and only one interception. And I said his runs were great, too. He is a big guy. He's almost Ben Rotzenberger size, but he is a fast runner. And mm-hmm. I think that helped. He showed. I, I'm... Look, Penn State doesn't have a tough game until two more weeks against Iowa, but this game made me feel like they're in they're in great shape to, for the Big Ten and again to, to try to go in. They have to go into Columbus to beat Ohio State. Is that next week? That's no. The next week's Purdue. <laughs> okay, <he's laughs> That's good. an easy one. The Ohio State game is in November, but they still have at Iowa. They have Michigan at home after that week. So now the schedule is going to get tougher. A lot of these teams you're seeing these undefeated teams. Schedule's been very easy. Now it's starting. Eventually, you're going to have to play some good teams. It's seven twelve. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Just about a minute or two away from getting uh, Craig Ellenport here on the line. Ira, let's just jump just real quick um, into baseball. You know, we, we already talked briefly about the Steelers, but we got a minute here. You guys fired Clint Hurdle today. Um, he's a very respected manager throughout baseball. I have a feeling, though, you're going to agree with this move. Well, I think it, in baseball right now, I mean, Hurdle's been there. When you say Clint Hurdle, the Pirates was fired, and you said nine years. And he, I think he had probably one of the, most, the, worst, the worst records of any manager. Yeah, it and wasn't the, good. Because he's been, we've been Penn State's, I mean, Penn State. The Pirates have been under 500 almost seems every single year. Uh, he came to the Pirates and had a couple successful the first couple years, but the last five or six have been terrible. It, I'm not saying it's his fault, but the team had the team totally collapsed this year. They were at 500, mm-hmm. and so considering how baseball, Brad Asmus was fired uh, today for, for the Angels. So if you, he's, he had one year, uh, but it was just about time that. And I think people saw this coming. I mean, I know you, you know, especially here on Iron Sports, have been as critical of anyone as just the front office in general, though, for the Pirates. I, I'm not saying that Clint Hurdle's a great coach. I don't know if he's a bad coach or if he was the problem. You know, you were saying that there should have been a lot of moves made and a lot of moves that weren't made at the deadline when they were out of it. And it just kind of seems like maybe there's a little misdirection, you know, in the front office. Well, they don't want to spend the money. And if they're not going to spend the money, then be like Oakland and Tampa and make the smart decisions. So they're they're choosing not to spend money. They want to have a payroll like Oakland and Tampa has. But t- Oakland and Tampa make the right decisions and the Pirates make the wrong decisions. It, it, it's crazy how Tampa continues to just make the the most of nothing you know you, you look at their roster and you just think like you know a lot of these guys wouldn't even be on teams in the major leagues they'd be the you know be playing minor leagues for the yankees or the red Sox. but uh this this team manages to just keep on keeping on just about uh, one minute we're dialing up uh we're dialing up craig ellenport right now on iron sports um anything else you want to talk about with brad osmus here because this is a guy i i don't think I don't think he's getting really a fair shake, and I think it might be the Joe Madden effect here. Well, Joe Madden was fired by the uh, by the Cubs, or they separated, and I think it's clearly he's going to come to the Angels uh, to be their next manager. He was in that organization. I, the, Joe Madden broke the uh, streak of 105 years at the Cubs, and he was a great manager at Tampa, great manager for the Cubs, and uh, to leave this way is ridiculous. I mean, they got to have some loyalty in Chicago. It's like this is their first <laughs> first World Series in a hundred in a hundred years, and they fire them 
manager after a couple years, only two years removed. Uh, it had to be some dispute between uh, between Epstein and Madden, but clearly Madden is the t- top manager in baseball, and I would I'm not surprised that the, it seems like the Angels are going to hire him. Yeah, if you're a middling coach right now, you have to be worried that your job's in trouble because your GM wants Joe Madden to fill your shoes. All right, it's time to bring in Craig Ellenport, veteran sports journalist. He's the author of NFL 100, the greatest moments of the NFL century. You can follow him on Twitter at Ellenport. Grab the book now on Amazon. Um, Craig, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, pleasure, Ira. Thank you. How are you doing? We're doing great. Um, Craig, before I turn it over to Ira, I got just one question for you, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot. How long did it take you to narrow down to just 100 moments? I mean, the, the list and, like, the cuts for those final few spots must have been grueling. It was, well, it, it was more fun than grueling, honestly. Uh, there were more than 100 for sure. Uh, you know, as I started writing, things just fell into place. You know, I, you know, started to research and write these things. Some moments seemed more important than others and just played around with it. I have no regrets about anything that's missing off this list, but uh, it was a lot of fun putting it together. Craig, the one thing about this is, Ira, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, we talk about books today, and a lot of people say, oh, we can just read that book online. That's an online book. This book is not meant to be read online. This book is or, or through, you know, as an e-book. It is, the pictures are tremendous. Uh, the writing, and it's a coffee table book, and, and I think that's what makes this book. This is the type of book that you put out there, and people come to your house, and you have it sitting out there, and people can look and fight over what the moments are, and the list, and, and those things. So I think for people to understand what kind of book this is. This is a book you really do not want to have as an e-book. You definitely want to have a hardcover uh, copy of this. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, Triumph uh, Books, the publisher, did a great job with it. Um, uh, J- Jesse Jordan, the editor, picking out some photos. So great, obviously, so many historic images, recognizable images that football fans um, know and love. And the beauty of Reading this, it, like you said, you can pick it up and put it down, you know, as much as you like. Read a couple of items on the list, uh, and then just revisit. And as you said, yes, definitely uh, can debate with people um, if there are missing moments or where some of these belong higher or lower. And um, I hope I hope readers have a lot of fun with that. Um, it's always exciting when you see the list. Everybody always goes to number one first. So let's start at the number one and, and have the, all the moments you chose as what some people, what most people call the greatest game ever played, the 58 championship between the Giants and Colts and the overtime win for the Colts. And what thought went into making that as the number one moment in the 100 years of the NFL? Well, I mean, it, it was a great game. Several Hall of Fame players on both sides of the ball, John Unitas, uh, Frank Gifford, and so many more. But the the point is that it was one of the first nationally televised games and a national champ, an NFL championship game, and the first ever overtime game. There, there, there was no such thing. Nobody, players didn't really know what to expect when <laughs> regulation ended and the game was still tied. And with the country watching this and the, the excitement, the interest in the NFL had been slowly growing over the years. Uh, it was not what it is today until you know and the 1958 title game set in motion the kind of popularity and explosive growth of the nfl that we know uh happened today and it's funny because one thing leads to another in this book in a lot of um, examples and you know after the 1958 nfl championship game there were a number of um well-to-do nfl uh, well-to-do american businessmen who decided they wanted an NFL team, and they couldn't get one, 
so they went ahead and created the American Football League. And in the 60s, the AFL became a rival league to the NFL, uh, resulting in the merger, which is number three on my list of greatest moments, because that merger between the NFL and AFL really created the NFL that we know of today. Yes, and you, and back to even as you said about in terms of television, uh, so many of your numbers. I, I I tried to group them a little bit. You, it, number seven was the the mm-hmm. Monday Night Football game. Number twenty nine was the first nationally televised game in uh, nineteen fifty one. Uh, Thirty one was Congress approves a single network, and then you had the first mega deal, NFL Network forming, Directv, Fox landing the NFL rights in the red zone. So there's at least ten percent of the list is just TV related. So sort of talk about the connection between television and the NFL more so than almost any other sport. That, that's right, more, more than any other sport. It re, and, and the number one reason for that is number four on my list, which arguably could have been number one, which is the birth of NFL films. Um, Ed Sable and then Steve Sable, his son, after him and with him, had a vision for the way to uh, a different way to present sports. And they, and this wasn't only TV, but... Uh, you know, they, they had motion pictures in mind with music and drama and script writing and slow motion. Uh, you know, they, they mythologized professional football, and no other major sport had that kind of mythology to it and created a romantic um, feeling for the game of football, which was incredible. But then, as you said, so many other, I mean, television and football are a perfect marriage. You know, birth of Monday night, debut of Monday night football is number seven on this list. Think about 1970 uh, television, a national television. You just had three broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. So there was a, such limited prime time viewing uh, space, inventory. And a network, ABC, decided to dedicate three hours of this limited inventory to live professional football. And that introduced again introduced the sport to so many people who maybe weren't watching on Sunday and really opened things up again and to that exponential growth in the 70s and then at number two um, was the Namath guarantee Joe Namath guarantee game uh, played here down here in Miami uh, talk mm-hmm. about what the thought about I mean Joe Namath is in the Hall of Fame he actually lives right in West Palm in the Palm Beach Gardens area right. uh, talk about that game and why that game was so important and why you made that number two on the list well, and, and, you know, the NFL-AFL merger was, was already agreed to and in place by then, of course, but nobody on the NFL side really thought that the AFL teams were going to come in and challenge the NFL. And so they said, oh, it's nice. We've gained some extra teams. We're going to get some extra revenue. These teams aren't going to compete with our NFL old guard teams. And the Packers went on and won the first two Super Bowls comfortably, and, uh, and, and the NFL thought that's the way it was going to be. Joe Namath and the Jets come in, defeat the Baltimore Colts as such heavy underdogs. And it's funny because Super Bowl Four is also fairly high on this list because a year after what the Jets and Joe Namath did, the Chiefs did it to the Minnesota Vikings. And so they, both of those games, uh, they go hand-in-hand hand in really legitimizing the AFL and telling people that this big, this new NFL was going to be legitimately good. Uh, one interesting thing, as I put this together, it really didn't occur to me as uh, or before this, but, you know, the greatest game ever played at number one on this list and the guarantee, number two, the winning 
co- the winning team had the same coach, Weeb Eubank, the Colts <laughs> head coach for the 58 title game, the Jets head coach in Super Bowl three. Really amazing. The guy is in the in the Hall of Fame, deservedly so, but he may not get quite the due that he deserves for having been uh, on these two major major teams. Well, you had a uh, number twelve. I guess the the most current game in terms of. Uh, yeah. uh, 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 on your list would be number 12, uh, Tom Brady's comeback against the Falcons in the 2017 Super Bowl. And, of course, the Patriots fill many of those top 100 lists. But in terms of the, the current moment, why did you feel, uh, I guess, the moment in the last 10 years, why did you feel like that would be uh, as the top moment, per se? Well, I mean, if you're thinking about the top moments of the last 20 years, the Patriots dominate that thought. And the challenge, actually, when I put the book together was, figuring out in what order the Patriot moments that, that, that are in this book fall into place. And I came, I came out with putting Super Bowl 51 as the top Patriots moment on this list. You, you've got the greatest comeback uh, in Super Bowl history, down 28-3, and they come back. You've got the first and only overtime game in Super Bowl history. Uh, and then you've got Tom Brady setting so many records in that game, and you know here he is, perhaps the all-time greatest quarterback. And uh, I mean, he, he didn't have to win this game to cement his legacy, but um, just again the record, the records that he set in that game, and uh, just very impressive. So that that's why they that game for the Patriots topped my list. Um, it- it was interesting. At number nine, you had breaking the color barrier. And it's like if people say, who broke the color barrier in baseball? Everybody knows Jackie Robinson. But it's football is a little different because they, they had African-Americans playing in the early 20s. And then there was a period of time they weren't playing. And then, uh, then in 1946, Kenny Washington of the Rams and a, and a couple other players. And then it, was, it integrated before baseball did. Uh, so that you had that at, at number nine. And talk about a little about the integration of, of football. Well, that's right. So, so very little known fact that African Americans played football way back in the early days of the NFL. I mean, Fritz Pollard uh, was a player coach and, and the first African American coach uh, in professional football, or and, and so that was impressive. But uh, in 1946, the NFL, both the NFL and the All American Football Conference, uh, of which four of their teams ended up merging into the NFL. Um, both broke the color barrier that year. It's interesting because the the two players who broke in, uh, broke out the uh, broke out with the Los Angeles Rams and broke the color barrier in the NFL, uh, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, uh, were from UCLA and played with Jackie Robinson at UCLA. Um, a lot of people, if you look it up, will tell you uh, or have said that Kenny Washington was a better athlete than Jackie Robinson, which is pretty incredible. Injuries slowed down his career, but uh, in the AAFC, the Cleveland Browns and Paul Brown, the architect of both that league and the team, his team, the Cleveland Browns, deserves a great deal of credit. And when he broke the color barrier, the two African-American players for the Cleveland Browns were Marion Motley and Bill Willis, who both ended up going to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So um, a great accomplishment uh, and put out a couple of great players, too. And then one aspect of the book, and it, it is very interesting for the NFL, is that they've had very few commissioners. Uh, and at number 11, you had Pete Rozelle. Uh, 48 was Tagliabue, 54 Bell, and uh, 88. You, had, you put Goodell, Roger Goodell in it at, at number 88. And, but talk about 
I guess Pete Rozelle's influence at the NFL, and I mean he gets a ton of credit that everything's named, but but talk about really what he did and what why he's credited for creating the modern NFL. Well, and just as just as we talked about, there were so many of these TV moments uh, strewn throughout the, the book. Uh, Pete Rozelle comes up a lot in this book, and not just when he was named the commissioner, and he was he was a PR guy, he was a compromise candidate when he was named commissioner. It wasn't an obvious choice, but he was he was brilliant, and he presided over the those mega TV deals and the you know the recognized the importance of and made sure that national television embraced pro football. He presided over the merger, which obviously, which as we've talked about, was so big for the NFL. He recognized, he recognized when the Super Bowl era began, he recognized the importance of this game um, and probably was the visionary who had it in his mind that the Super Bowl was going to become an, a major extravaganza and Super Bowl Sunday and pomp and circumstance. And he knew as a PR guy, how to get the media interested and how to get the media to promote what he was doing. Um, the, the last note I'll mention about Pete Rozelle is he's also listed here in uh, number 38 on my list, which is the NFL draft first being televised on ESPN. Uh, you know, the NFL draft used to be a private selection meeting of players. It wasn't on TV. It wasn't publicized much. Um, and now it's, you know, perhaps the second biggest TV uh, event of the year for football after the Super Bowl. Well, ESPN in 1982 was a fledgling network cable channel that had no programming, and they said, yeah, can we do this, uh, televise the draft? And NFL owners unanimously said no because they were worried that agents were going to get involved and we don't want TVs in our off in our selection meeting. And P. Rozelle wanted this to happen despite the owner's uh, rejection of it. And he went back to ESPN and said, well, you know, they said no, but I can't stop you from covering this as a news event, <laughs> as, as, as news. And so that's how the televis televised draft began, and that was all Pete Rozelle. We're talking to Craig Ellenport. He uh, has the the author of NFL 100. It's a tremendous <clears throat> book uh, detailing the 100 greatest moments of the NFL in their 100-year history. Um, just uh, one last question. You mentioned a lot about uh, the um, rules in, in there in terms of the changing, how the NFL is, has changed. We, we had John Eisenberg, uh, the author of The League, on a few months ago, and he talked about this also, about in number 36, you had the new rules for offense in 78, the free substitution, it, uh, free substitutions, because you actually couldn't substitute. If someone came out, like in soccer, they couldn't go back in the game uh, in 59. <laughs> so talk about how the NFL has, has changed with the rules and how they've used the rules to become a more popular sport. Well, and, and in some cases, especially in recent years, it's been to the detriment, right? I mean, a lot of people are not happy about um, too many rules changes and they're being tough on defenses because all they want is offense. But that that major one happened in the late 70s and 77, uh, the number 36 on my list with the new rules that were created to help the offense. That was a direct response to uh, the year before when there were, there were uh, an abundance of shutouts and low-scoring games, especially early in the year. And guys like Dallas Cowboys general manager Tex Schramm um, were up in arms over it, and they knew that something had to be done. They 
relaxed the rules against uh, for offensive linemen. They made it easier that you know the five yard chuck rule for defensive backs. They made it harder on defensive backs. That was the, that year was the big one. So I mean we've had this before. And as you mentioned, the other major rule change early in the 60s, you know, as far as free substitution goes, that was the end of the two-way players. And we can romanticize two-way players all we want, but the specialization, um, even back then in the NFL, created um, the high standard of football play that we know of. And I do want to mention one last <laughs> at number five uh, because we're so we're down here at West Palm Beach. Uh, you had the Miami Dolphin, the perfection team, and 1973. Uh, it is surprising that it there it has not. I mean, not. It, I think it's surprising that it hasn't been matched. Uh, the Patriots came yeah. within a, a few minutes of doing that. Mm-hmm. But uh, but that's why I, talk about that team and why you put them up at at number five. I think some people may look at that and think it's too high, but I don't think so. And the more I looked at it for the book, the more I gained even greater. I mean, look, I have I've got tremendous respect for that team, the, the the perfect team. But I think people and and it, it's as I talked about the one thing that and I understand it eats, gets at their craw is if you see a highlight from Super Bowl seven when they capped their perfect season, the only highlight anybody ever sees is a blooper that went against them with the Gary premium field goal that the Redskins returned for a touchdown. And, you know, they, they won with great defense and great running game, and that's, that doesn't make for usually for great highlights. And for that reason, I don't think they get the appreciation that they deserve. And I just think about that Gary premium play, and I think, you know, here was, and as I wrote in the book, this team went 14-0 and in the regular season, 2-0 and in the playoffs, and they're about they're, they're about to go 17 and 0 in winning the Super Bowl. They're up 14 nothing with a little over two minutes to play when they tried that field goal. And if the if the blooper doesn't happen, and if the field goal doesn't get blocked, and they don't get it returned for a touchdown, if they kick the field goal, they cap their 17 and 0 season with a 17 nothing victory in the Super Bowl, which, by the way, would be the only shutout in Super Bowl history this team would be looked at on such a higher level than it already is, deservedly so. So interesting, fascinating to me, and I really think they deserve more credit. Well, hopefully the Dolphins can, can not, will not <laughs> demir that by going 0-16 this year but uh, as a bookend. But, but, Craig, I really appreciate you coming on the show. The book is NFL 100. As I said earlier, it's a coffee table book. It's something you have to buy in hardcover. The pictures are... Uh, the black and white, the color, and the writing—it's a perfect book. It's everywhere. It's like if you—if you're a sports, if you're an NFL fan, you should have this book, and it should be somewhere on your shelf, on your coffee table, to show your friends and your family. Right, thank you. I really appreciate that. He is Craig Ellenport. Thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. Once again, you can follow Craig on Twitter at Ellenport or grab the NFL 100, the greatest moments of the NFL's century on Amazon. Ira, great interview. That, you know, it's crazy. That's I have a feeling, especially someone like me, a little bit younger, you learn a lot. I didn't know they used to have a rule with no substitutions like soccer. I mean, that's just crazy, but that's the kind of thing that's... A, Tom Brady a, would be playing defense. That would yeah, be. I could see him at, at safety, maybe <laughs> strong safety, crowd in the box sometimes. Um, really interesting stuff there. Um, let's keep going on college, because we were, we were getting into that, and this was a weekend where we kind of went in like, mm, there's not really that much to watch. There ended up being some closer games than there should have been, though. Um, but we want to talk a little bit about um, how things are going for the what should be four playoff teams. Well, it, 
it seems like every week there's that one big game, like last weekend, Georgia, Notre Dame. And then there's always all these other games where one, it's going to be, it came out of nowhere. Like, where is that tight game going to happen? And there's so many blowouts, and these dominant teams are winning. And uh, it was, it's just wondering what happened. And so on Saturday, like, I, I didn't know where to watch the games because I, I sort of wanted to watch all the games. But, and you go to, like, you're in D.C. So my girlfriend took me to this, I call it the fake sports bar type place. The one that <laughs> wants to be cool, that has, like, two, like, a bunch of rooms with, like, two TVs. But if you want to watch five games at a time, you can't. And you try to turn the TVs. It's an issue. It's a problem. But yeah. <laughs> it was her idea to come. We went. The Nationals game was really big. I mean, D.C. now with the Nationals, it is. It's everyone's excited. We went to that. They had, if they won that game, they would clinch the wild, the wild card game home field. So I sat in the club and I got a neat seat where you could sit like almost at a at a table, so you could watch the game. And at the same time, I had my iPad out, my my <laughs> iPhone out. So I had Clemson, uh, North Carolina on one phone, and uh, on the iPad I had Alabama, Mississippi State, and we're watching those games, watching the baseball. It was perfect. It was great. So I got the atmosphere of being outside in a packed stadium and still watching some good college football games. But as we said before, there's five conferences for four spots in the playoffs. The Pac-12 with now, with California losing on Friday night, there, there's no undefeated teams. It's hard to see a one-loss Pac-12 team getting no, in this yeah, year. Not happen. The ACC really only has Clemson. The Big 12 only really has Oklahoma. The Big 10 has a number of teams. Wisconsin, Iowa, Penn State, Ohio State, all undefeated teams. And then the SEC has this where they have these super dominant teams and then the rest of the conference isn't that good. And Georgia, Florida, Auburn, Bama, and LSU. And you're almost thinking that, boy, if the SEC is like, well, we deserve two teams in. Like, we're going to get two. We don't care about everybody else. You can take two of us and you can take Clemson and Oklahoma, but don't take the Big Ten. So that's sort of what they're debating. Until they go to eight teams, this is always going to be a problem. Every year. And you're going to have, and the SEC is going to say for the last couple years, they've been getting those two teams and they want it, they want it in. And in the game, so Clemson plays Carolina. They Carolina just lost to Appalachian State. They lost to Wake Forest the week before. They were Clemson was a 30-point favorite in the game. And a Matt, lot of people took those points. Yes. And Matt Brown, and, and remember, Clemson hasn't lost in, in two years. They're the defend rating, defending national champion who blew out Alabama in the national championship game with the with the with Trevor Lawrence, who's the was was the presumed Heisman Trophy candidate with a zillion people on defense, offense, wide receivers, all NFL, and and they, you, the gate, they were down seven nothing, and you're like, oh well, they'll win fifty two seven, and then they're down fourteen seven, and then it's, and then it's fourteen fourteen and a half, and you're like, ah, second half they're gonna be, it's gonna be forty two to fourteen, but North Carolina's coach is Mac Brown. Remember, he coached at North Carolina, he went to Texas, he coached that Vince Young team mm -hmm. that beat the Reggie Bush, and some people think the greatest college football game ever played, uh, and then he was out of coaching for a couple years in the broadcasting. Now he's back at North Carolina, and so he played. I mean that. That team, North Carolina, play tough. In that second half, Clemson had uh, four possessions, three punts. Their defense played great. And then with nine minutes left, uh, out of nowhere, Lawrence DeHiggins touchdown 21-14. So it's 21-14. You think, okay, Clemson has this game won. Carolina went on a 16-play drive, like for like 87 yards. It took eight minutes and 37 minutes. A second. Crazy. Fourth and they converted two fourth downs, fourth and one, fourth and four. And with a minute to go, they score a touchdown. So now it's 21-20. And I, I, I thought they made the right choice. I mean, this team is beleaguered. They're, they're, they, and they were on a roll. They just scored. And people said, well, just kick the extra point and go to overtime. But they didn't want to go to overtime. Like, they wanted yeah. to win it now. You have your chance. You have Clemson. You have with one play to beat the number one team in the country. You know they have better <laughs> depth. You know they're more explosive offensively. 
I, I, I could believe people criticize Mac Brown for the decision. Absolutely was, I agree. Know, they say, what, well, home, you go for a tie on the road, you go, or the home, you go for the tie on the road, you go for the win. But clearly, not against the number one team in the country. You're a 30 point underdog, <laughs> and you have a chance to win don't the game. Don't let their offense back on don't the field. Don't let the offense, don't yeah. play the tiebreaker. And they, and they went. It was a good play, it was an option on the right side, and Clemson stopped it. But it. What that win, so North Carolina loses. It was a great game. But Clemson, people watched that game and said, okay, you're dropping down in the polls. So finally, yeah. now Clemson is number two in the polls, <laughs> and Alabama moved up to number one. No, I, you know, you're right. That was a big uh, controversial thing today. And they were saying, oh, if it wasn't Mac Brown, they'd be crucifying some young 30 year old coach who went for two there. I agree wholeheartedly, Ira. Their defense has been on the field for nine minutes. Make, you know, let, let's walk off with this. And apparently, you, you agree with me too. Big 12, what's going on here? Well, Oklahoma, uh, they look, Jalen Hurts was the quarterback for Alabama for two years. He lost the job to Tua, and now he goes to Oklahoma. And Lincoln Riley, we're, Bob Stoops left Oklahoma, and you see a lot of these great coaches that leave, and there's that drop off. The Tom Osborne effect mm-hmm. in Nebraska, uh, there's even at in, in, in Michigan when, when Lloyd Carlin. I mean, you're seeing some problems that these teams have when the great coaches, the championship coaches leave. Boy, this was a great, this was a great turn. Lincoln Riley has turned into, from uh, Baker Mayfield two years ago, Kyler Murray last year. He takes Jalen Hurts with just his first year in the program, and he is unbelievable. I mean, 17 for 24, 415 yards, three touchdowns. Their wide receivers, this C.D. Lamb, oh, tremendous. <laughs> I mean, he was catching balls, and Charleston Rambo, first of all, great names, but yeah. Rambo had two catches for 120 yards, They are, and they can't catch. And the difference with this Oklahoma team, and what's scary about this Oklahoma team is their defense, because Texas Tech was one for 14 on third downs, and only had 122 passing yards. So last year, we were said, Oklahoma's getting the shootouts, it's going to be 60 to 50, it's going to be these big scores, but if Oklahoma can play defense like this, this is what happened, hurt them against Alabama last yeah. year in the Orange Bowl when I was at, but this is why the, they look totally now, two weeks they play Texas, their first big test of the whole year. But they looked tremendous. I mean, Texas Tech was uh, had one loss on the year, and it was, thir- again, another one of these games, 34-0 at halftime. And there's a jump to the SEC. Alabama played Mississippi State, same situation. They're up 38-7 to mm-hmm. at halftime. At half I mean, they were down 10-7 at one point, but then Tua is just, I mean, he was 26 for 36, another 418 yards, six touchdowns. For the year, he has almost 2,000 yards in four games, 23 touchdowns, zero interceptions, <laughs> and their second-best wide receiver, Dante Devontae Smith, 11 catches, five touchdowns. I mean, this is high school. This is like yeah. what high school players do. And uh, Alabama looks phenomenal. Georgia was off. LSU was off. They're both undefeated. And Auburn blows out Mississippi State at night. They were up uh, 42-9 at halftime. They ended up winning 56-23, and Florida destroyed Towson. So the it really is now setting up. There's going to be one big SEC game every week. Next week, Auburn uh, against Florida. So humongous game. Two undefeated teams, and, uh, and, and it's almost like elimination. Now remember, Georgia Florida are on the one side of the SEC and mm-hmm. Auburn, Alabama, and LSU are on the other. So these teams are going to have losses, but it's going to be exciting that you're at least going to have one big game every week, and that's going to be at 3.30 next week. Ira, do you happen to take a gander at the prices for Florida, Auburn? They must be very high. It's uh, I've never seen. I know you've, you because you go to the, the more high-profile college games, but I've never seen you know just a regular you know regular season game price like this. It's just ridiculous. You know, to try to get in there. It's Iron Sports seven forty three. This is the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Um, real quick, Ira, what's going on in the Big Ten? 
Ohio State looked tremendous. They go against Nebraska. It's the primetime game. Blow them out 42-7, 38-0 in halftime. Justin Fields is tremendous. But And I watched the Wisconsin-Northwestern game. That was an interesting game. Wisconsin, had, their uniforms were like the old school, like they had 150 years ago uniforms. But they ended up beating Wisconsin easily. Uh, and and so it's like it sets an Iowa beat Middle Tennessee. So as I said, the, the big games are coming up. The Big Ten's going to have a big game in a couple weeks. Ohio State next weekend plays Michigan State. But... The point is there's about 10, 11 teams that are battling for those four playoff spots. And, but every week you're going to have that Clemson, North Carolina, where out of nowhere, one of these star teams is going to have to be challenged. Ira, obviously uh, Auburn, Florida is probably the game of the week next week. Any other games you're keeping your eye on? I'm going to go to Penn State, Purdue. Uh, I was at Michigan. Michigan, it's almost a must-win after the loss they Definitely had two weeks win. ago. Uh, they can't re- have a repeat. Uh, and Michigan State versus Ohio State at night and 3.30, the Auburn-Florida game. And Virginia Tech is 2-2, two and two, Miami 2-2. Two and two. Used to be a huge game, and now no one really cares about it. You know, Ira, you know a, a thing or two about rules and laws and things like that, and I think you might be one of the more uh, qualified people you know, in the sports media to answer this question about what is going on in California because they passed a bill today saying that, kind of just usurping the NCAA, saying if you live in California, you are allowed to make money on endorsements. You could be in and out Burgers spokesman as a college freshman. How is this going to affect college football? Do you think that the NCAA is going to try to override this? What's your take? Well, they can't override it in California, but it's in 2023 that it takes an effect. So they're waiting for the NCAA. It's sort of a shot across the bow. But the point is that you'll be able to sell your likeness, be able to uh, sign autographs, be able to be endorsed products. But where the abuse comes from it is that if even you're the fencing team and you want want a top fencer, you just have a booster say, hey, come to my car dealership and Mm. sign autographs and I'll give you $100,000. So the point is, What's going to Sue's going to stop for that from going on? Um, California is saying it. California is not saying people are misreading how this is reporting. It's not that they're going to pay the players. It's letting the players profit off their likeness to get paid by somebody else. Now, the NCAA said, well, if you do that, then you're ineligible. So then anybody playing in, in California that takes, well, every school would have someone do this, then they'd be totally ineligible. And California would have their own, I guess, championship. They'd be out. <laughs> so this is, this is four years out or three years out, really, about when this would take effect. Uh, and it's going to be something the NCAA is going to be working through in terms of the rules about how this is going to happen. But you're seeing more states pushing this too, almost pushing the NCAA to enact some something. And it's going to be hard for the NCAA to regulate this because, as I said, it's one thing that people can go on the internet and, and say, I'm going to get paid for endorsing products or paid for those things. But then you're going to have the abuses where people are just going to pay athletes for that don't really. But then they're going to, this allows them to sign agents and the agents are going to give them money mm-hmm. and you're going to have. So it's it's definitely, it's, it's something that the NCAA, we're moving toward and college athletics, but it's going to be very difficult. It's already now difficult to enforce to think what's going to happen when this gets through. It's a real Pandora's box that's getting opened here, and that's why I'm interesting to see how this plays out over the next three or four years. NFL action, we had a good week. There were some some interesting games, um, a lot of games that didn't go the way I thought they were going to, and a lot of games that really did, and we were you know texting throughout the weekend, like, I kind of saw this coming. Um, let's jump right into Eagles-Packers, because this is one that we kind of agreed on, that we thought the Eagles were going to play better than people anticipated. We had a lot of people who were like, well, it's Aaron Rodgers and the Packers and they're they're undefeated, they're going to roll and that just wasn't what happened. 
a weird game. The Packers go up 10 nothing fast, and then they have two bad kickoffs, and it let the Eagles back in the game. I mean, you watch that first five, six, seven minutes of the game, you're like, Packers have this game won. Mm-hmm. It's dominant. They're playing great. They're at home. They look great. Eagles sloppy penalties. Sl- everything. And then they give those, they let the Eagles return one kickoff back to the 30. The other was they kicked it out of bounds. They got it at the 40. And that's sort of, then you get to this game where they're back and forth. But uh, but the Eagles were up by a touchdown at the end of the game, and the Packers go down to the Philadelphia Eagles one-yard line. They had four chances, four incomplete passes. Then they get another chance and go back again, and Rodgers threw an interception, but it was off. It wasn't really his fault, but it was a bad loss for Aaron Rodgers. I mean, it's like one of these games where, I mean, I'm a big Tom Brady fan. I support him. It's like when Aaron Rodgers has a game like this, he doesn't get criticized. Like, Aaron, you had a chance to win that game. Patrick Mahomes made the play at the game to win. I, again, I think Aaron Rodgers is like Teflon. Like, you cannot criticize him for anything he does. He's viewed as this, like, the greatest quarterback of all time when this is a game where he really should have had the touchdown at the end of the game. You want to know what's funny is that a lot of people in the media are saying how amazing his game was. And, yeah, you know, he had 422 yards. That That's amazing. He didn't win. <laughs> and you had chances to win, and you didn't get it done. I know Devontae Adams went down at the end of the game, but still, the, you're right. He, he does have— Four straight incompletions yeah. in the, on the one-yard line. It wasn't like they ran the ball four times. Four straight incompletions. Um, let's move—so we were talking about games we were right. I got to tell you, Ira, I was—the Bills were such a trendy pick this week. Not to win— but everyone's saying, man, the Bills are really going to give the Patriots a run for their money. They got this great defense. I took a bet from everyone who was willing to give me. Uh, you know, I was laying seven points on the Patriots. I thought this was a, a two, three score win for the Patriots. Boy, was I wrong. The Bills defense showed up. Well, you look like you were right in like one thirty in the <laughs> afternoon. You looked <laughs> yeah. smart. Every, we were texting. You were like, well, you were right. It they was were ten up thir- nothing. I think yeah, they 13. were thirteen nothing, and 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 it looked like it was a block. The Bills got a punt blocked, but they they the really the Bills. Defense Defense is for real. I give Brady credit for this, and, and I, I heard someone else say this the other day. He played a smart game. As great as the Bills played on defense, no sacks and only one interception that wasn't that important in terms of when the interception was. The Patriots played a smart game. They realized it was going to be hard for them to score. They yeah. took the lead. They hung on to the lead, and it was it was a risky strategy, but that's where the greatness of Brady is. He figured out a way to win that game, and, and when you're not playing that well, uh, I mean, this is where they do miss Antonio Brown, where you could see that it would have been great to have another great wide receiver out, of course. Like a tremendous wide receiver, but um, J.C. Jackson for the Patriots, he had, he had two interceptions and a block punt. I mean, as great, as much as we're talking about how good the Bill's defense was the Patriots defense was tremendous. I mean, uh, Josh Allen threw three interceptions. Then he gets hurt. Matt Barkley comes in the game, and throws another another interception. Uh, but I think it was a win. It's like one of those. I always say the Fernando Valenzuela it was a pitcher for the Dodgers, and he was one of the greatest pitchers with the could like throw no hitters almost every time. Mm-hmm. But there was when he had his worst stuff, he would win games even then. And that's what the Patriots have. When they're not playing well, they figure out how to still win those games. Yeah, no, absolutely. You see Brady do this once or twice a season. Have this 13 for 26, 160 yards and win. Not a of lot course of teams he's too do old that. now. I mean, he's not like the only quarterback <laughs> that had a bad day. I mean, there was a lot of other great yeah. quarterbacks that had bad days. But no, Brady's too old. No, he just had it. Went against a good defense that in a fired up crowd, the Bills, it was the most popular ticket Division matchup. Yep. Division matchup. And Bills played great. And, and the Patriots figured out a way to win the game. So, Ira, one of the other games we did agree on, and, and you know, I, I, a lot of people, my phone was going crazy around 1250. And... A friend of mine was looking for a suicide pick, and they wanted to take the Chiefs over the Lions as their suicide pick. And I said, you are crazy. The Chiefs are great. Lions may be playing a little over their head, but I thought this game was going to be close, and so did you. And it really was the nail-biter of the week. Well, Matthew Stafford, I think the Lions are going to be, the way the NFC is set up, they're one of these teams that uh, could make, you know, 
it's not that surprising. division is really stacked. no the division the league everything on that on that side of the conference is wide open Stafford played very good he threw three touchdown passes um, this is the first game in 15 games Pat Combs has not thrown a, thrown a touchdown he would have broken the re- if he threw two touchdown passes he would have broken the record for consecutive games right. with that but broken Peyton Manning's record the Lions score make it 30-27 at the end of the game and with 225 to go uh, Mahomes was able to come down but he it was a fourth and eight on the 34 yard line and and they had no timeout. I mean, if the Lions would have stopped him on that fourth and eight, and Mahomes runs the ball. I mean, that was a that was it wasn't a pass. It was a run up the middle. Great play by on his part. It just shows he's. I mean, he's a tremendous quarterback. Can't take anything away from him at all. Um, and it was it was a big win for the Chiefs. But I think again, it's almost like what the Bills did. Both games are similar. Home teams that play these undefeated teams really tough and just barely lost at the end of the game. It's 7:51. I run sports. True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo breaking down all of the action from the NFL and going to look forward to tonight's battle of the defeated, I guess you'd say, uh, 0-3 Steelers versus 0-3 Bengals. So, an AFC North matchup, and this is one where, again, Ira, I think people jump to conclusions way too fast through four weeks. I've been on the you know, in the camp that the Browns are not a Super Bowl team before, like a lot of people thought before the season started, but I didn't think they were that bad. And I think a lot of people expected the Ravens to go in and beat up on the Browns, and that just didn't happen. Well, I, I was, <laughs> you saw what happened in the game, what I thought was going to happen, is that Odell Beckham Jr. decided they were going to triple to cover him the whole mm-hmm. game. And they had two passes, he had only two catches for 20, 30 yeah. yards. But Jarvis Landry, who we know back down here in Miami, was tremendous, had tremendous player, eight catches, 165 yards. And when you see Nick Chubb run that, with 88 was, yards, yeah. he is powerful the line, he's fast, uh, just a great running back. And Mayfield made the right decisions, and their defense played just good enough, and they neutralized, I mean, it, Baltimore looked like a team. Baltimore looked like an 8-8, eight 9-7 and, eight, and seven team. They didn't look like the superstar team, Lamar Jackson, making every play. And Cleveland's defense did just enough to win the game. And it was when the game got close, Cleveland went and Chubb had that great run and blew him out. But, yeah, Cleveland looks like that team that if the Chiefs and the Patriots are the 1-1A, one one they look like that team right back. And, I, and they've only lost two games. They're not 1-5. They're 2-5. Two they're 2-2. Mm-hmm. Two two. Yeah, well, they're in first place yeah, now. First Everyone's place. been talking about the Ravens. And now the Browns are in first place out of nowhere. I think this is one of the tougher picks this week. It was it was a toss up to me, Ira, and I wouldn't have touched it uh, with you know with anyone's money. It was the Raiders and the Colts. Colts have been looking really good with Jacoby Brissett. Raiders, you just don't know what you're getting week in and week out, but they looked the part yesterday. Yeah, I mean the Raiders played. Again, Derek Carr is going to have these games where he's he's going to look really good, and I, you just got to think that the Raiders are going to get their act, start playing better as the year goes on. And the Colts sort of look like what I thought. I mean, everyone thought the Colts had this great defense that was going to stop everybody. That's what people thought about this game. It didn't happen. I mean, the story of this game was Vontae's perfect, and you know yeah. how much I don't like Vontae's perfect. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just for a second. I mean, he, this is a this is a guy that in 2013 hit James Jones. He punched Ryan Taylor in the groin. Was fine for that. 2014 twisted the ankle of Cam Newton and Greg Olson after the plays. In 2015, he, had, he took uh, Ben Rotzenberger, Labian Bell, it hurt them in the game, and then in the playoffs, the cheapest shot I've ever seen in football against Antonio Brown cost the Steelers a chance probably to go to Super Bowl that year by knocking Antonio Brown out. And in 2016, he got a suspension for PEDs, but in 2017, Blindside hit on Anthony Sherman in the preseason was suspended three games. And then that's where he kicked Roosevelt Nixon in the face mask. Um, I mean, again, 2018, he hit James Conner and Antonio Brown again and got fined. I mean, he has millions of dollars in fines, games, multiple game suspensions. So today, 
today, or yesterday, he hit helmet to helmet on Jack Doyle. Terrible play. Went, I mean, in today's day and age, I, that would have got a penalty 25 years ago, mm -hmm. let alone today. And uh, now they finally, he got the longest, they suspend him for the rest of the year, the longest suspension in the history of the NFL. And again, I, the NFL has, for the last 10 years, spent so much time about off the field. Is this person doing? They're trying to investigate. And I'm like, the first priority of the league is on the field. It's the, it has to be the first priority yeah. of the league. And to let Vontaze Burfecht do this after year after year after year, and he's dangerous to hurting players, I cannot believe more players that just didn't go to the league and say, look, we have all these other players in the league. He is so by far out of the norm. Like, it's people say, oh my God, it's too much. Suspended for a year. I mean, he really should be suspended forever. And he's only 29 years old, but it's it's what he's going to, he's going to seriously injure someone if he keeps playing the way he plays. And, and he's been fine, been suspended. It hasn't changed. And he really doesn't deserve the right to play the NFL. And this is the on the field. They're so worried about everything off the field. You get a DW. I'm not saying that nothing is important off the field, but the first priority of the league should be on the field and players. And if this person is completely playing differently than everyone else, he shouldn't be allowed to play. In any, it could be high school, junior high school, mm -hmm. bitty league football. If one player is cheating and of hitting wrong, they're not going to let them play. And I don't know why he gets to play in the NFL. He's a scumbag, <laughs> you know, when it comes down to it, and uh, you know, I'm glad to see that the you NFL saw when he ran off the field. He, he almost paralyzes a player, he's running off the field, smiling, joking around, laughing. He doesn't mm -hmm. care, he knew he was gonna get suspended. And I just I cannot believe people are even on the radio and television today saying, Oh, I think the suspension is too long. He should be gone for the rest of the year, and the other players should say that, Yes, we want him out of the league. Ira, it's really hard to find constants in the NFL. One team could look so bad against a bad opponent, then beat the best team in the NFL the next week. There is one constant this year. The Dolphins are not going to win many games. And you could, at this point, just bet against them every week, lay the 15 points that they're going to be underdogs at, and you're still going to win. And that's what we saw with the Chargers. Well, they were they considered a great win day game when they were 17-10 at the halftime. And, they the, and first the Chargers went in. They're up seven, and they're probably getting yelled at. Like, what's going on? Yeah. And they, But they've been the Dolphins have been outscored 81 nothing in the second second half. Uh, Josh Rosen looks like he's playing better, but, but now look so bad. But now they're dropping passes. Like he was 17 for 24, only missed seven, and like four of his incompletions were on drop passes. Uh, but yeah, the Dolphins look like. I mean, you got to think that they're going to still get a win. I, the league is such a way that if they get on, and it, they might get a win somewhere. They Maybe do play against, the Redskins. They play the Redskins. <laughs> they play the Jets. Something like that. But uh, but definitely, if you're a Charger, if you lose that game, that would be a devastating loss to you. So. You know, there's a prop bet in Vegas. Who's going to get their first win, a win first the Dolphins or the Heat Heat season <laughs> openers October 23rd so it's it's interesting they, they are favored by the way the Heat are favored over the Dolphins in this one you said it on this show two weeks ago how that you could ever throw another ball in Kalen Balazs way and you see it for a first down yesterday hit right in the hands he could have turned up the field for 15 yards on I think it was like a third and six spikes it to the ground why this guy's ever in a third down situation or even looked at by Josh Rose is just beyond me um, you know, me being a Giants fan, it seems like a lot of people in New York and especially the media are anointing Daniel Jones as, as the, you know, the prodigy, the wonder kid already. He's 2-0, but he didn't look great in his second game against a pretty bad Washington team. I'm still encouraged, but I don't think it's time to say that New York's problems are over. I don't think they're over, but he does look... He looks the part. He looks the part, and... Uh, and, and you'd rather be the Giants with Jones than a lot of other teams with what they have. Haskins <laughs> so, threw three picks. And, uh, and and they bring in, like the Redskins were with injuries, and, and they pulled Case Keenum, and they bring Dwayne, Dwayne Haskins in the game, and he throws three interceptions. But they now the Redskins are with zero wins. They're like, let's play him more. And you really like what Daniel Jones, he, he, he is – 
again, I think he's playing smart. He seems to have a strong enough arm. I mean, one of the criticisms was his arm wasn't strong enough. Mm-hmm. He looks like to Sterling Shepard. His passes look sharp and accurate. So, so far, so good. And they don't have Saquon Barkley. And they won two games, which is, I think, if you're a Giants fan, you should be happy with I thought that. they were going to win two games all season. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'll take it. Ira, um, if you're in a suicide pool, you know, we talked about it earlier. A lot of people got knocked out yesterday, taking the Rams over Tampa. Tampa is, you know, I just said it a few minutes ago. There's certain teams you just don't know what you're going to get week to week. Tampa's one of these teams. Who would have anticipated they dropped 55 points against the Rams? Not me. Well, they have, and Bruce Arians is an offensive uh, genius. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's against some teams are able to, and if Jameis Winston plays like that, I mean, he looks like a superstar quarterback. And I think what surprised everyone is where is the Rams defense? Where's this great Rams defense? And it just fell apart. It fell apart last year against the Chiefs, but you weren't so surprised because the Chiefs had Patrick mm-hmm. Mahomes. But they got down in the game, uh, Goff threw for a million yards, but it was just, but they, the, the Rams have no running game whatsoever. Todd Gurley yeah, can't, they can't run the ball. Himself. I mean, they're only down 21 14, and he only carried the ball five times in the game and you have a guy that was last year was going to be the MVP of the league for the first 13 games of the season uh, but just a terrible loss for the Rams at home uh, I, I don't like to read in a lot of these things about oh this season is over and people are making pr- pr- pronostications on it but the Rams seem to have the same problems the Rams had last year uh, in terms of these inconsistent performances especially from Goff everything has to be perfect with him he has to have if everyone's wide open he's going to complete great passes but I'm more concerned about their defense to give up that many points mm-hmm. uh and they know they just just a bad bad outing. I might have a uh, mutiny on our hands in Minnesota if Kirk Cousins can't start getting the ball. He's got arguably the best receiving duo in in the league in uh, Adam Thielen and Stephen Diggs, and he just he, he can't make plays. And the Bears defense is great; they're the best defense in the league, and they showed it. But you got to be a little bit upset if you're a Vikings fan well, That's right what's now. exciting about the NFL. One game is 55-40, the other game is 16-6. Yeah. <laughs> so the Bears defense is great, but the Vikings, and you're starting to see that Adam Thielen criticized uh, uh, Cousins about how he's playing and about getting the balls and running and uh, it seems like, wait, look, the Vikings look like a team. If they get the lead, they can hold that lead uh, and, and just win the game out. But when they get in a situation where they need Cousins to make plays, it's not been happening. But I still like the Vikings a lot. I like their defense. It was a weird game. I still, look, the NFC is wide, wide open from everybody. I mean, and mm-hmm. so, I mean, in the AFC, you have two teams at 4-0, and you have eight of the 16 teams are 2-2. Two and two. So it's like the Chiefs and the Patriots are way out there, and there's everybody else. And then the NFC, though, it's like the only undefeated team is San Francisco 49ers. So. Yeah, no, it's crazy to think that the, the NFC North is just, it's going to be a bloodbath this season. I, I agree with you. The Vikings are really good. They probably have the best running back in the league right now in Dalvin Cook. Two great receivers. Defense is great. you got to win more games, Kirk Cousins. It comes down to him. Um, real quick, just Saints-Cowboys last night. This was an ugly one. I think a lot of people were expecting fireworks, but I think the better team won at home. What this game makes you believe, look, I'm not writing the Cowboys off. I mean, people are saying Dak Prescott no. stinks. They're awful. They're this. Look, they go in. I was there last year, two games in New Orleans. That is a really hard place to play. And it's loud. And those fans are into the game. And Teddy Bridgewater played a smart game. But, boy, the Saints defense, they can play like this. This makes you believe when then Drew Brees comes back, you see Kamara is just phenomenal. Maybe the, I think the best running back in the league. I really think mm-hmm. he can do everything. And you have Michael Thomas, probably the best wide receiver in the league. When Brees comes back with that offense, if the defense can play like that, maybe the Saints are the favorite to go to the Super Bowl. Uh, and the, I, last, time the, the last time the Super Bowl was here in Miami, they were there. They, they, they uh, beat the Colts. I'm starting to think that when Brees comes back, this especially because he'll be rested. 
not, you know, he was really falling apart there in the playoffs. End of the season, he should be good to go. What are you looking forward to this week? Uh, Baltimore at Pittsburgh uh, on Thursday night. Yeah, they've been getting these good Thursday night games. We had the Packers last week, the Eagles. Now we have Rams at Seahawks, and uh, the Colts and Chiefs are Sunday night game. And the next Monday, Cleveland at San Francisco. So let's see if Cleveland can knock off the uh, undefeated 49ers. Ira, baseball is over, and we're going into the postseason. I'm not a big fan of the play-in games, but we are going to see our first one tomorrow night, I believe. Yeah, I mean, Milwaukee, uh, it could have been. There could have been a game tonight. Because if what would happen is if Milwaukee and St. Louis would have, it would have tied for the division, they would have played a game tonight. A play then, into the play. And it's almost better. They're saying it's better not to keep using your pitchers. But it's going to be Washington, at Milwaukee at, at Washington. Milwaukee, you have, see, that's the weird thing about baseball now. You have the Dodgers and the uh, Astros have these huge leads. The Yankees have had these. They've known been in the playoffs the last two months, three months, really. Mm-hmm. And then you have teams like the Brewers that have been battling, battling, fighting, the fighting to get day. in. So they're hot and they're ready to go. And, and now they're playing this wild card game. And now the Nationals, though, are saying, look, we're going to start Scherzer, we have Strasburg, we have Colbert, everybody available. But then the point is, if you use everybody, then in two days you've got to play the Dodgers. So it's, it's, it, that's the advantage of the way the system is. You win your Dodge, you win your division, you get home field, and you don't have to play in the wild card game. But I like, I, I don't know what I like. I, I'm going to say Scherzer has not pitched well against uh, this last month. He's the best pitcher in the National League, one of the best pitchers might win the Cy Young, but he hasn't pitched well the last month. And the Brewers seem to have, they've been playing the best, and I think they're going to win. I would agree with you on on that one. Um, It should be interesting. What about in the AL? Because the Rays and A's are another team that we look at every year like, how is this team even in baseball? And they still make the playoffs. Well, both these teams are super hot also. And the Indians yeah. were the hot too and just, they fell out. They, they it, was, it, it was a great race at the end. And actually, three teams with very low payrolls that don't get a lot of fans are in that. And you have Rays and A's. And, and the Rays are just, uh, uh, it'll be Charlie Morton versus Sam Manea. And they have allowed the fewest home runs allowed. It's, it's funny. The Minnesota and Yankee series are going to have the two teams that have hit the most home runs in the history of baseball, <laughs> yeah. 307 to 306. And then the Rays and A's have allowed the fewest home runs. Uh, but uh, it's going to be in, in Oakland. I, I think Tampa has been playing great. I think Tampa wins this game. Uh, and then, uh, and then, then Tampa has to go to play at the Astros. But of all the big name teams, the Yankees have had their problems with Herman. Uh, pa- he's out. Paxton hurt his hurt himself. They don't have the starting pitcher. The Astros. Granky, I watched a game three days ago. He had a no hitter in the middle of the ninth inning. He had one out of the ninth <laughs> inning. Verlander and Cole. You have three pitchers that are pitching totally lights out. Great bullpen. Great hitters. This is for this is the year. The I mean, if the I'd be shocked. The Astros don't win the World Series. And the Dodgers. The pressure is going to get to them because everyone expects them to get the World Series again. And boy, it's Milwaukee so or Washington could give them a lot of trouble and then the next series, St. Louis and Atlanta. And it's interesting that three, we have four teams here in Palm Beach that play. Uh, of the 10 teams in the playoffs, three of those teams are in the playoffs. Only one that's not is the home team. (laughs) Um, I I agree with you on that one too, and I think it's going to come down to the pitching matchup. Charlie Morton's been really good. Sean Manea had a real bad hiccup uh, the past couple of months. He's been a little up and down with the A's. So I'll go ahead and give that um, the benefit of the doubt to the Rays there to to go on and play play Houston. Um, Boxing, you know, I, I heard so much real quick about Errol Spence and Sean Porter going into this fight. They were hyping it everywhere, and I didn't really know who these guys were, but you said this was a great fight. I wish they would have put this on like regular TV. They're both welterweights. Um, we had talked about it before where Spence is undefeated, and Porter has two losses, one to Keith Thurman and Kelly Brock, but he's two of the best welterweights in the world. This was the perfect boxing match, because people talk about boxing. They are both aggressive. 
throwing a lot of punches, and also they know how to duck punches and move. And it was it was one of those bouts. It was 116-111 uh, Spence on two judges' scorecards. It was eight eight rounds to four, and it was eight to four on the other judge scorecard for uh, Porter. But it could have gone either way. I mean, they both fought great fights. The difference was the eleventh round. They were just throwing multiple punches, and Spence hit Porter, and Porter went down to his knee. Just a second, just went down to his knee for a knockdown, and that was like the little bit of difference in terms of that. And I think Porter fought well, poor in the twelfth round, but it was a very exciting fight. It was not the Mayweather Pacquiao where they just dance around. They mm. were throwing punches, they were moving, and even at the end of the fight, Porter goes, "Look, I might have lost, but did you guys have a good time? Like it was a stable <laughs> center, it was a sellout. It was really one of those that when you look at boxing, like that, these are two great fighters, quick." fast, they're powerful, uh, just tremendous. Ira, let's uh, talk about tonight's game here real quick. I think our producer, uh, Mike Scooter Marone, has a little song ready to go here for your uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. So, Ira, I didn't realize that Renegade was kind of tied in with the Pittsburgh Steelers. You're saying this is the theme, ready to go. This is the total theme. I mean, they, they used to have the song, here we go, Steelers, here we go. But at, what, at, in, in Heinz Field, whenever they feel like the defense needs, like when there's a stop and the action, and there has to be, what they do is all the lights, the scoreboard, everything goes out and it just becomes totally black. And then there's like silence for like 10 seconds. And then they play the song by Sticks, And it gets everyone going crazy and everyone's waving the terrible towels. And it's the motivation for the song. I mean, everyone goes, it doesn't work all all the time but it's sort of like they play it when they really feel it's not for the offense it's for the defense when they need a defensive stop they play that song so this is a huge huge game between the Bengals and the Steelers uh, the Steelers need this it's Monday night and uh, next week they play at the Ravens so the Steelers lose this game they can play Baltimore they can look at an 0-5 start and they're big favorite tonight so let's see if uh, they can pull it out against the Cincinnati Bengals one team is going to go home with a win tonight so uh, good for them I want to thank Craig Ellenport so much for stopping by he was a great interview Ira where are you headed this week Penn State Purdue on Saturday and Steelers Ravens Sunday we're out of time on behalf of Ira I'm Mike we'll talk next Monday night Ira on sports